we need another book on strategy, right? Or another book on OKRs, agree? A few months ago, I attended a quarterly webinar hosted by OKRs expert Ben Lamort, who is the founder of OKRs.com, and he's also been on the show uh, more than once. In that session, there was a guy named Dan Montgomery, and he's also an author. His book is Start Less, Finish More. And after listening to some of Dan's comments and a reference to the great strategy writer, Roger Martin, who will be on the show in a few weeks, I had to learn more about Dan Montgomery. Dan's take on the balanced scorecard, long-term planning, and strategy is different, complete, and provocative. And that's why I like his approach to agile strategy. I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf. My conversation with Dan Montgomery about his book, Start Less, Finish More, is coming up next. In addition to being an author, Dan Montgomery is the founder of the consulting firm Agile Strategies based in Colorado. Dan's background is interesting. It's unique. He did not start his career at a large consulting firm, or he never worked in a large corporate planning department. His origin story starts in HR and then migrates into IT. Yeah, the irony is uh, I got an MBA from the University of Colorado a really long time ago now. And strategy to me was probably about the least interesting subject because it seemed really abstract and it was just all about all about numbers, you know, and there was no human context to it at all. And so maybe I was too young to appreciate strategy. That's entirely possible. I was more focused on operational kinds of things, but I was really drawn into human resources just kind of naturally because I I just kind of paid attention to how is this organization for the people in it? Are people working in the right jobs? What do people want to do? And I just always had an interest in that. Um, and then I had had a couple of jobs like that before my MBA. And then after the MBA, actually during the time I was getting the MBA, I was exposed to my first human resource information system. And that just fascinated me. I thought, if you can model how all of the people are interacting in an organization in a computer, that is really amazing because there's all kinds of opportunities for getting people in the right positions and optimizing the training and managing performance management and all those great things. Uh, so I did an HR, I designed a human resource information system in HRIS in my first job in uh, Omaha, Nebraska, and went on from there and got into IT. Uh, I kind of got just seduced more into a pure IT role and worked in a lot of different environments, um, a couple of hospitals, a bank, uh, got into IT consulting for a while. And finally, um, I think it was Balanced Scorecard that really got me interested in strategy because um, I was working in an IT firm and this guy named um, Paul Niven, who went on to become a famous Balanced yes, Scorecard very consultant, much. came in looking for a technology solution for what he was building for this uh, utility that he worked for, which eventually ended up in the Balanced Scorecard Hall of Fame. And the more I looked at it, I thought this is really interesting because, you know, I'd been in people kind of roles, I'd been in tech kind of roles, and I always felt like I don't understand what the whole organization is attempting to do here. And I feel like I have to make a lot of decisions on my own, and I don't know if I'm really aligned with what's important. And nobody's really telling me. The balanced scorecard was a way to see how all of those different functions all feed into a longer term image of, you know, what is what is success. So, I mean, balanced scorecard is more focused on strategy execution than strategy development, I would say. Uh, so, uh, you know, typically you kind of Take the strategy as a given, clarify it if you need to, and then build out, okay, who needs to do what here? How are we going to know if we're on the right track? And to me, OKRs are an evolution of balanced scorecard uh, because it's not as rigid a model that says you have to have objectives in each of four perspectives. 
and this is a three to five year continuous improvement framework. No, we're re-examining our assumptions about what we're doing in our commitments literally every quarter, which really fits um, you know, the way that the economy increasingly works. I mean, that started in Silicon Valley. And I think the, the moment of truth for me came, I, I was teaching a balanced scorecard boot camp, a five-day course in San Jose, and had a group of people from a lot of the local tech companies in there who were int intrigued by the model. But um, after lunch one day, they all, they'd been talking and they ganged up on me. And they said, you know, conceptually, this is a great model, but there's no way I can take this back to, you know, you name the company. We had Adobe in there and a bunch of other ones. We need something a lot more agile than that. I can't, I'll be laughed out of the room if I bring this back in there, because it's like, you're trying to predict what what where you need to be in five years. That's completely impossible. Oh, I was, I've got that highlighted in my book. You've got it as a sidebar, and I thought I I was nodding my head as you were going through that conversation about you know Adobe and some of these other people who had come up to you and said, "I can't make this work." Right, right. So I went. I, I thought you know there's got to be a better way to do it, and I you know I went on a learning journey with that. Uh, learned a lot about Agile, big A Agile, as in Agile development, and um, was was lucky to work with a couple of companies here in Boulder that were trying to apply Agile concepts to the way they conceived and executed strategy. And somewhere along there, I discovered OKRs, and I thought, okay, this is it. Because what really appealed to me, it was not just... Um, an abstract goal setting, goal management system. It, it had this human element that I actually didn't find in balanced scorecards so much that uh, kind of really, it talked about, you really need to have a lot of psychological safety and openness and really good conversations in order to make this work. And that's really something they've cultivated in the Silicon Valley culture, not always successfully, but it's a stronger ideal there than certainly other parts of the economy or has been because of the fact that you need people putting their whole mind into it and not holding back out of being polite or being fearful of what the boss will think or anything like that. Much more open environment. Um, and it, I, I find the model, it appeals more directly to senior leadership who are really trying to get something done. I think with Balanced Scorecard, it, it appeals to the kind of personality I call a strategy geek which might include me, but someone who really likes to think about how all the pieces fit together and is more of an analytical nature rather than um, someone who's like really leading and aspirational. So what I started noticing, I'd be on plane rides and the person next to me is reading Measure What Matters. And um, I start talking. It's like, well, yeah, I work with OKRs. What do you think of that book? And it inevitably would turn out that that person was a CXO. And I never found interest at that level in the organization for balanced scorecard. I mean, I think it's a great model, but um, there's something about OKR that really um, appeals to the gut and the heart this, more directly. Just a side note, measure what matters. Uh, that book is the least of my favorite of all the OKRs books out there. I still like Christina Watke's book the most uh, radical focus when it comes to OKRs. We may bring that up in a, in a few minutes. What, one other thing about a first for you. So here you are, this HR person uh, became IT, and now you're, you're this, you're, you're a strategy guy. And there's another first. You may be the first person I've ever met who's a non-financial person that really embraced the balanced scorecard. The book Mm -hmm. is not about your book is not about uh, start less finish more not about the balanced scorecard but I do have a quick question while we're on it where are we today on the balanced scorecard I I know in businesses probably 75 million and under I don't think you're going to hear that concept or that management tool as much I don't work with large public companies. Is it still being used? Is there an iteration of it that's being used? I don't know where we are on 
the balance scorecard these days? Well, I've, I've made a practice of going into Google Analytics and looking at what, what, what are people searching for. And balance scorecard is still definitely out there. Amazing. I think it's a, a gradually declining plateau, if you will. Um, I see a lot, a lot of interest has grown in developing countries, uh, especially the ones where you tend to have the government playing a strong role in the economy, because I think it's a little more appealing if you're looking for a little bit more of a control kind of tool and just knowing that everything's in balance. So, um, you know, you see a lot of it in the, um, the Arab countries, the African countries. Um, I think it's still big and growing in that context. But you're right. I almost think OKRs are in a different kind of a market. Um, I don't see a huge amount of penetration, at least at the executive level of OKRs in Fortune 500 companies. Like we've been in a few of them, but we're generally working with a particular team in the middle, often one that's connected typically with either technology or marketing, where you tend to turn over ideas a lot more quickly than some of the other functions. And yeah, we do a lot of work with startups and, you know, privately owned small to medium type businesses. That's, that's the core of the market. And I, I keep checking with some of my colleagues and competitors and some of the software companies. And that's really the dominant um, part of the economy for OKRs right now. I expect it to start pushing up into the enterprise market fairly soon. So we're, we're looking for evidence of that. So I, I think they almost appeal to different, different levels in the economy. I want to, if it's okay, Dan, I want to jump in your book, uh, Start Less, Finish More. I want to choose my words carefully. And if you correct me, I will not be insulted. So I view uh, the Start Less, Finish More is basically your canvas, your playbook for executing, not just executing strategy, but formulating it on the front end. There's not a lot of, it's not heavy on design, but it's more, it's, well, it's, it's synergistic. So again, I'm going to use the words that it's my interpretation, but feel free to correct me. But you do have five prongs, five pieces to it. And I don't think you've ever heard this before. So I'm, I'm your customer. I've already read your book. So you're going to hear five opinions. One of your prongs is the trickiest. That's the assess. I think that one's tricky, but thankfully you give us a tool. Number two, I see one of them, the focus as the most important and the most critical. Now that could be controversial and you're smiling. The number three is commit. I call that one the most paralyzing. Again, this is potentially I know in my world, it would be focusing there. They're, oh, we have to make a decision. Uh, the next one, let me say what it is. Unless you're Google, unless you're Google, who has perfect culture, right? Uh, potentially the most frustrating, and that's act. And then the last prong, and this one you're not pushing back on. I think it's the most underrated. That's learn. So you have a five-part agile strategy framework, assess, focus, commit, act, learn. Brilliant. How do you like my assessment of your big five? Sounds like you read the book at least twice. I've read the book. I think you really captured it. Yeah. Um, Well, you know, what I was trying to do with that is that You know, I came out of a background in my years in IT of, you know, they're very big on project management methodologies, and often you get analogous kind of steps. And then I moved into strategy, and there's a whole concept of strategy management, which encompasses both strategic planning and execution and requires a number of steps. And so there's a number of strategy consultants out there that will have a model that has something roughly equivalent to these steps. Um, Often they tend to be more steps, like nine steps or 15 steps. And I wanted to design something with the minimum possible number of steps. You know, how simple can I make this? Um, And I agree. I think the, the most challenging ones are really assess and learn because those are the two that people are most likely to skip. Yes, because you really have to take a look at what are our assumptions about the world that we're operating in 
And the problem is a lot of those are, they're received in the sense that, you know, you're just adopting a story you learned from somebody else and then you don't question it because a lot of the, a lot of the way our brains work, that's unconscious or semi-conscious, you know, and, you know, you propose a new idea and the boss says, well, we've always been successful doing it this way. And then you get the message, you know, I probably better just let that go. You know, that's just, you know, I don't want to rock the boat here. Baby needs new shoes. Um, so assess is challenging because you have to look at those mental models. And that's where, you know, I learned a lot from studying with Peter Senge and a lot of other kind of organizational systems thinkers um, that brought together a, a lot of a lot of those kinds of ideas, you know, about looking at, you know, what are the underlying narratives and mythologies? Because we think we're being very scientific and data driven, but we direct our minds to look for certain data based on the stories we're telling ourselves. So that's very challenging stuff to work with. Um, yeah. And then focus. Yes. You have to make a decision, you know, um, knowing what to say no to is probably more important than what you say yes to. Which is why it can be so paralyzing. <laughs> exactly. I love the way you, that you put that. Yeah. You just kind of want to keep your options open, you know? Yeah. And, um, and I'll just jump to learning at the end, particularly I found in my IT career, there was always a step at the end of the methodology, no matter what company you work for, you know, and I worked for Ernst and Young and I worked for Accenture where, okay, we're going to consolidate what happened here, do an after action review. Uh, so we do it better next time. But the dynamics, particularly in professional consulting and in a lot of internal IT departments is you're always in such a hurry to like free the resources to get onto the next project that it's like, um, you know, well, Dan, now we, we need you to fly to Chicago next week. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll assess the learnings, but you need to get going on this other project. And so the learning doesn't happen and you just keep doing the same thing over and over again. Before we go too much further, I want to get a good definition of agile strategy. And I want to tease something up before we hear your definition when I'm in casual conversations with CEOs and even managers who work for those smaller business, and we're talking about $75 million and under, I'll tell them, if you really want a good grasp of strategy, study some of the best startup people. I, I still believe Steve Blank is one of the great under, unless you're in Silicon Valley, he's one of the great underrated management thinkers of our time. And if you read his blog carefully, I don't know a strategy that term comes up very much, but everything your book talks about, if Steve read your book, he'd say, we do this, we do this, we do this. This is all inherent implied in our work of lean startups. Eric Reese would be saying the same thing. So I want to just share that, my opinion, that opinion but give us a good definition, your best favorite definition of agile strategy. For me, it's it's a continuous search for new ways to deliver value to your customer. Um, and you have to keep that search up because, you know, the world is dynamic. It's changing really quickly. And, you know, a few years ago, I used to start off a lot of my presentations trying to convince people that, they needed to think about uncertainty and they needed to think about disruption. And often if you got very far outside of Silicon Valley or the tech world, it was a little bit of a missionary sell to make that argument. Uh, and I'm finding lately, it's like, yeah, yeah, we know that we need help. Let's get on with it. Uh, particularly when the pandemic hit two years ago now, um, suddenly it's like, yes, Things can go topsy-turvy overnight, and we've all had that collective experience, and we all adapted in whatever way we had to, and we did it really fast. So I think we're more used to that, um, that kind of sudden shock, and I think, I think we need to just keep expecting more of it. So then what you have to do is say, okay, 
let's let's look at our assumptions about what is of value to our customer. And as these our mental models shift about what's going on in our world, how can we deliver new value or keep delivering the value that we are given that everything is shifting all the time? So to me, that's that's an agile strategy. And um, I think compared to a lot of other OKR authors, I do talk about strategy more than many of them because I had come out of a out of a number of years doing strategic planning and balanced scorecards. I've done a lot of those kinds of projects, and I really wanted to keep one foot in that. Um, there aren't there aren't too many other OKR consultants who even use the term strategy all that much, but I think it's absolutely essential that you're clear on the strategy. I mean, we were talking earlier about Roger Martin. It's like, if they can answer all those questions he poses in playing to win, what's our aspiration? Where do we play? How do we win? What capacities do we need? And what systems and measures do we need? If you already know that, we can just go right to work on OKRs. If not, we need to back up a little bit and get clear on that. Otherwise, um, you're just running around like a chicken with your head cut off. You're not really, you don't have the focus. You don't have that step done before you make the commitments. We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. I want to add to your definition. I, actually, I'm not adding to. I want to have an addendum. And I, this is in your book. You say that strategy is not a plan to be executed, but it's a hypothesis about what your customers value. And it must be continuous, continuously validated. That's why I have this jaded mindset about consultants who come in and help with strategic planning. It's not an event, like you said, and you brought up COVID. It's just constant test this hypothesis, test this hypothesis. Everything's an experiment. And again, I just love mm -hmm. that line. I think your definition of strategy is one of the simplest I, I've read in a long time. And speaking of OKRs, your word, you call OKRs the driving engine to this this strategic agility what do you mean by that well that you know that that whole five step cycle you talk about is that's a time scale independent set of conversations that people need to learn and get used to so that we're all thinking more strategically and i often see that now a lot of companies i work with they have you know strategic perspective is kind of a a value that they espouse. How do you actually get a team to learn how to do that? Because most of us have not been trained how to do that because it requires stepping back a little bit and looking at your assumptions. You know, there's so much of what Chris Archer has talked about, you know, over so many years that then Peter Senge picked up and took to the next level about double loop learning, for example. Um, yeah. So you, you've got to, You've got to step back and take a look at what you're doing. Um, make sure you've got the right focus. Then rather than continuing to just talk about possibilities all day, it's like, all right, what are we going to focus on? The advantage of OKRs being so short term is that you don't even really have to say no to anything. You just say not this quarter. We'll put it in the backlog. We'll see if it makes sense next quarter. Let's just pick something to focus on and move ahead with that. So you make the commitment. You go through like regular focused check-ins with the team about what you're doing. So if you're doing quarterly OKRs, you should have a conversation about those at least every week. And then that teaches you whether your assumptions are correct and then you adopt them. So it's a, it's a faster cycle of action learning, basically. In your book, and I didn't tell you this. So yes, I did read your book twice. 
Now, the first read was a very quick read. The second read was a very detailed, take a lot of notes. What I did not tell you is I went down several rabbit trails because you bring up a lot of different ideas. For example, when you get into the Agile Manifesto. So I had to go look at that because I'd read that just recently. In the Manifesto, like 13, 14 uh, points in that man. I mean, it's it's not short. Um that's good. Uh, I was reading the Kinev, the, the Kinevin framework, which is brilliant. So a lot of the things you're bringing up stuff is like it led me to other things, including this one cool concept. Multi-causal systems is incredibly, I'd never thought about that. I've, I've read authors who will talk about multi-causal systems, but they're not using that term. Would you please explain what a multi-causal system is and how it relates to, again, strategic agility? Yeah, I mean, it's, I, that is as opposed to a complicated system. So this is, to me, the big flaw with strategic planning is it's like if we crunch enough data, we can predict that if we do X, then Y will happen, and then we won't feel any insecurity, uncertainty, um, will feel good. And, you know, people pay a lot of money to, you know, people with shiny shoes and blue shoots, blue suits who go crunch all this data, but it, you can't predict the future. So we're in a much more complex economy. So, and I, I owe a lot of this thinking to Dave Snowden and the Kneffen framework yes. that in a complicated system, it's a mechanical model of reality. And you say, well, like, yeah, a Boeing Dreamliner is a extremely complicated, but all of the pieces are designed by human beings to fit together to operate under a certain range of environmental conditions, like so much wind, so much altitude, so much heat, all of that kind of stuff. So you can, if you do a good enough job, you can be pretty successful at predicting how the machine is going to perform in a variety of circumstances. In a multi-causal network, you you can't do that. It, it's a more ecological model of reality. And really all you can do is come up with your best hypothesis, but then you've got to like probe in experiment. So this is completely the same thing Eric Reese was talking about with, you know, the lean startup, because you go in, you try a minimum viable product. If it works, you scale up. And then even when you scale up, that's not a guarantee it's going to work at scale. You may hit points where the the, the logic of scale ceases to work anymore. And then, then you have to look at something else. So you need to be prepared to be surprised. You need to be very scientific about looking at the data and what it's telling you and being willing to change your mind. Where you drove this home, this concept, you, you talked about the engineer, who by the time he or she graduates, will have solved 3,500 problems. That's a lot of problems. But yet you get into the field, it is a whole new ball game. And I would say that's the same thing for especially young strategy consultants. They they may have, they've got the the template down, but then when they meet the real world, I mean, again, we're ta- now we're talking complexity. So I again I loved this concept. I want to throw another one at you that I thought was cool. Instead of MVP, minimal viable product, you talked about NVS. I'll let you say what NVS is. It's a minimum viable strategy. So rather than creating a 90-page PowerPoint document deck, which is a favorite tool of many consultants and has been for many years, that just drives everything down into all the detail. And here's a five-year cash flow projection and all this kind of stuff. It's recognizing we can't, um, we can't predict the future to that extent. And it's, it's arrogant and just wrong to think that we can, it actually doesn't work, which is why even, you know, a lot of, a lot of investors don't even buy into those kind of decks anymore. It's like, no, you know, you've got an aspiration. You need to have a good story about where you're going. And then um, we'll see where we go. So a minimum viable strategy is something that you can probably say on one page and tell it as a story. Like, this is what our aspiration is. This is, this is what we believe our customers want. 
And we're going to use OKRs to continue refining our learning about whether that's true, finding that product market fit and exploiting that in a way that generates profits. And it's a continuous experiment. It's not one and done, you know. And that's why the idea of these five-year strategic plans, um, I'm finding we're getting very few private companies that even want a five-year strategic plan anymore. The the market that still wants them is um, tends to be nonprofits and sometimes governmental entities, um, which, you know, maybe they can move a little more slowly. I'm not convinced they really can or should, but um, the private sector just isn't buying that model anymore. If I, if I had a voice in that discussion, I'm not saying you need a five or a 10 year plan. I would say the question is, first of all, where's your greatest risk? Is your risk of relevancy five years down the road or is it this year? The risk is usually going to be because the, the average life of a company is 30 years. So there still needs to be long-term thinking. I think the question is, am I still going to be relevant? <laughs> so I think the longer-term strategy stays firm, but where NVS comes into play is here are these many strategies that support that longer-term strategy that hopefully is going to ensure that we're going to be around for a friggin' long time. Is or is, is that make Right. Yeah, and I think that's where, I mean, both both the balanced scorecard and the OKRs have this emphasis on metrics. And um, you can also have a number of KPIs, which are kind of more stable. An OKR is something more transformative you're trying to do in the short term. KPIs are keeping the lights on, keeping track of that. So if you want to stay relevant, uh, you should ask yourself the question, well, what data would actually tell us that we're staying relevant? Right. If we're finding that we're, we're, um, you know, we're dependent on a lot of people between the ages of 30 and 45 to buy our product and something's telling us what the 28 year olds are thinking that's doesn't fit with what we're selling. Well, they're going to be 30 in two years. So, So there's, you know, kind of more, it calls for more things like scenario planning and just, um, Tracking like what needs to be true to prove that our assumptions are correct. One of your prongs is assess, and I call that maybe the trickiest, the most confusing, or the hardest. So you brought up a concept I had not thought about ever. You use the steep framework, and I don't think it's the end all, but if you're stuck, Steep, S-T-E-P as in Paul, is a great starting point. Could you explain what steep is and where its place is with assess? Yeah, it, it, it's a way to look at changes happening in a variety of domains in the external world. You need to look at what's happening inside your company too, but you know they're all connected. So the S is social. So you're looking at what are the demographic trends, you know? Um, if you're trying to sell cars that appeal to 35 year olds and suddenly you're noticing the 30 year olds aren't driving, I mean, that's an extreme example, but you better pay attention to that because that's social behavior, demographics. Um, T is technology. And we've seen in our lifetimes, enormous changes of what technology makes possible that we couldn't have even dreamed of. How would we have survived this pandemic without the technology that we have that we didn't have 20 or 30 years ago. The two E's, environment and economics, which are, you know, very closely connected. But, you know, economics, obviously, we're looking at things like um, currency risk, inflation, all of those, all of those kinds of things. Um, environmental, um, you know, you may be affected by changes in the climate. Most of us are these days. And then P is political. So political, regulatory kinds of changes that might allow new things or prevent something that you've been doing. Something that you've been doing is now going to be more heavily regulated. So you just do that and look at what, that's a way to look at what the trends are. Now you ask, how does that fit into the rest of it? 
The problem is the future is not just a linear extrapolation of what we think the trends are. If you think that's the way to plan for the future, you're not being imaginative enough. So um, what's really helpful, what I love about strategic foresight and scenario planning is that you kind of look at, well, what do we know for sure? You know, like we can predict how many 30-year-olds there will be in the United States five years from now. That's pretty tight. But then what will their political views be? Um, I think that's up for grabs. So you you map what you know, what you can know pretty surely, and what you don't know. And then imagine, well, you know, what if the 30-year-olds of five years from now are, yeah, radically independent, anti-government, um, or they could go the other way and, and be socialists, for example. Like, which way is it going to go? Because they're going to be a bigger voting cohort. That's going to in turn affect the political. So you you imagine a bunch of different possibilities and try to design a strategy that's robust enough that it will work under a variety of circumstances. And then you've had the conversation about what might happen. So as one person who taught me scenario planning said, you can't predict the future, but you can recognize it faster when it starts to happen. You have time for a couple more big ideas from your book? Sure. The other one is something I had not thought about. Now, again, I tend to, I think cringe is the wrong emotion or the wrong response, but businesses that go through, and I'm not going to name names, but there's some very highly popular consulting firms that help with scale ups and help with uh, uh, basic management. They're very well known. And one of the first things they do is they go through the core values exercise. And I just, I, I think the best way to do that exercise is to hire a third party and just observe how people behave. Those are your core values. It's the way you're already behaving. So you brought up, in the context of values in your book, you brought up the platonic values of beauty, truth, goodness. So I had I went down another rabbit trail and just doing some, re- and it's like, this is very fascinating because you don't just apply the platonic values to the way we behave individually, but this applies to our product. Does your product have, and again, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm looking at this through my eye, the way I read this book. Again, the concept of platonic values related to core values, I thought was this guy thinks, I love the way he thinks. (laughs) That's great. Yeah. Well, yeah, I see those as, you know, Plato supposedly came up with these, a long, long time ago, but they are foundational and um, they are really relevant to business values because um, and competitive strategies. So if you look at beauty, well, that has a lot to do with how you design products, for example. So you could say, well, you look at Apple. Apple has emphasized aesthetics and elegance and usability. And, you know, I... I'm an Apple fan and I just kind of every day I sort of just appreciate those qualities of it. So that, that applies a lot to design. Um, Goodness has a lot to do with morality. Are you actually concerned about other people? And so we're seeing more and more values that have to do with sustainable sustainability and being good community citizens and not creating wasteful products, you know, creating products that could be, reused or recycled being more conscious of that and there's a huge move on about that and then you know truth is being yeah honest about what you're about Uh, you know telling the truth to your shareholders telling the truth to your employees because um you know as abraham lincoln said i mean you can fool some of the people some of the time however he said that i can't ever quite put that sense together he was quite a writer, but you know what I mean? That, I mean, ultimately you can't pull the wool over everybody's eyes. It's going to catch up with you. And I, I think I talked about the example of Enron and we can pick on them because they don't exist anymore. Um, they had a very nice looking set of values, but 
you're right. The best way to do values is not to just get a bunch of people, executives sitting in a room and coming up with high sounding phrases. Um, it'll sound very optimistic. Um, Enron had a value of, of increasing quarterly profits quarter on quarter. That was a real value. And that's that led to the behavior that got them in trouble. But the, the published values, what I call lobbyware, like what you'd put on a plaque in the waiting room, um, were, you know, respect and integrity and all these things that who would disagree with that? It's, you know, it's Boy Scout level uh, stuff. It's sure, brave, thrifty, clean, reverent, you name it. So, yeah, uh, the values need to really reflect who you really are. And um, I mean, I've had some interesting discussions on that. I was working through that with one um, with one company that was a family-owned company. And the CEO, who was basically siblings and cousins with the rest of the owners, um, proposed a value of that had to do with profits and building wealth. And people said, oh, that's, not, that's just not going to sound good. But it's like he said, look, that's the way I have to make decisions or, you know, my, you know, my cousin's going to be in here, you know. So, I mean, that's that's the reality. Let's be truthful about that. Uh, last thing I want to bring up, I think this was in the learn uh, chapter, uh, but I think it applies to act as well. But I, I just made a note about the Google research on uh, what makes for a great team. And I, I think I'd read that maybe before, but I read that. I went back and reread that. I just thought, this is, why doesn't everybody know this? So the Google research, I think they researched, I think about not quite 200 teams. And the one trait that came up the most frequent, the highest rank was a high level of psychological safety. So the fact that you've got this in your book in the learn section, it's in the book because, and you fill in the blank, Dan. Well, because you you can't have effective conversations about assumptions, focus, what you're committed to, what's actually going on. I mean, there are different kinds of conversations that happen at each of those five stages, which we probably don't have time to get into right now. But in, in every case... Um, people around the table or around the Zoom call need to feel free to, you know, um, say what they're seeing and be upfront about it. And it's it's surprising how many organizations that's just not cool. You know, particularly if you get into a more autocratic environment, it is not safe to disagree with the boss. And to me, that's a sign of insecurity. And it's not actually a competitive organizational behavior any longer. It worked for a long time, but that's, to me, that's um, the the beauty of all of the churn and change that happens, particularly in the U.S. economy, is that it forces us to be more complex thinkers and to have better conversations with each other in order to remain competitive. And I, you know, I see that as a, a beautiful evolutionary trend that we've got going that I think is extremely positive. So the name of the book is Start Less, Finish More. The other title, the other title could have been uh, Practical Strategy for the Rest of Us, uh, because it's just such. It's this is such a readable uh, book. Uh, again, this is not for tech organizations. This could be nonprofit. Uh, you can take the concepts if you're a a, a football coach, but so th- this this message is universal. Uh, before we wrap up, tell me about your firm, and I want to be really nosy. How does an engagement work? What does that look like in your practice, in your consulting firm? Well, so we're called Agile Strategies. Uh, we've got a group of four people at this point, and we've been growing very rapidly, particularly since the pandemic hit. So our focus is primarily on OKRs. We do a bit of strategy work if it's not clear. We're not primarily a strategy firm, but we will do that if there's a need to look at, we're not clear on where we're going to play and how we're going to win, then we better talk about that. 
Um, so our typical engagement is we'll go in and do some discovery with a, an executive team, look at any surveys, analyses that have been done, how well is the organization performing. We've got something we call an OKR audit that looks at not only how are they managing goals, but also how clear is the strategy through the organization and how agile is the culture, which includes elements like psychological safety. So we use that as a basis for really diagnosing and prescribing what we think um, would be helpful to them. We typically then start off with a basic training that we go through. Here's the best practices for OKRs. Um, then we go through a set of workshops to actually develop the OKRs. And then we'll stick with the client for a quarter or two, helping them with the regular cadence of check-ins, uh, getting through an end of quarter retrospective and reset. So let's look at how well we did on our OKRs and what do we need to do differently next time. So we teach them how to do this process of adaptation at the end of each quarter. So typically it's an engagement for a quarter or two. And we'll also train internal OKR champions, people who are like the equivalent of scrum masters in the uh, agile world, people who understand the process and can facilitate that. And then that helps really get it into the DNA of the organization. And then we can go away. I ask every person we interview what books you're reading or what books you like. The reason I was looking forward to this is because there are a number of books you mentioned in your book. I can tell that, oh, I'm sure he's read this book because he's brought up this concept. I have a feeling you read very widely, and I think you also will go deep sometimes. So I'm, I'm, I'm like a little kid going to the candy store. I'm anxious to hear, what are some of your favorite books of all time, Dan? Well, the one I'm really raving about right now, which I just finished, it just came out. It's The Dawn of Everything by David uh, Graber and David Wengro. And I love that because I've always been fascinated on how humanity developed. I think, you know, if I'd gone into an academic career, I would have been an anthropologist. But it it completely blew all of my assumptions about where we came from. You know, there's this conventional idea that people were hunter-gatherers and, you know, lived in small, very collaborative, democratic sort of tribes. And then we became agriculturalists, and that's when hierarchy and rules and laws developed. And these guys just blow that out of the water with a lot of really good evidence that since, like, it was not a deterministic, inevitable progression. There were societies that were agricultural and chose to go back to hunting and gathering. And they're emphasizing the fact that humans have always been smart and have been making choices about the way they wanted to live. And um, so um, that one above all, and uh, just because I just, I just finished it and I just, I just can't recommend it highly enough. 1300 ratings, really great book. 1300 ratings, 4.6 average rating. So a lot of yeah. people are agreeing with you. It, uh, it's long. So, okay. <laughs> Any other books? What 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 else has been uh, transformational or very just impactful over the years that stuck with you? Well, I I, I like a lot of the work. Uh, I don't agree with the model completely, but a lot of the ideas that you see in Spiral Dynamics or the work of Ken Wilber, uh, which is generally called integral thinking, uh, because they've they've really tried to put together. What's a developmental view of how people behave together? And it's it's a and how is that a response to environmental conditions? Because other I think it's a good way to cut through being opinionated about I see things a certain way and you see things a different way and you know I must be right and you must be wrong. Um, it, it's it's a way to appreciate different kinds of culture and you know different different types of developmental lines that people go through, which I think, particularly given the polarization that we're seeing in society today, I think we desperately need that. We, we need to see more interdependence. Um, so, I mean, the other one that I, I would point out that's been out there for a long time is a book by Joanna Macy, who's known as a environmental activist, talking about this idea of 
interdependence, you know, thinking about systems thinking and interdependence. And I, I have it back on my shelf and I can't remember the exact title right now, but Joanna Macy is just a tremendous author that way. Again, looking at complexity, ways to look at complexity. So I, I feel like I've gained a friend. You're the kind of person where I would want to hang out with, Hey, let's go to dinner. Let's, let's go do coffee. Let, let's talk. You just seem like the kind of person that we have so much in common. And again, I, I congratulate you on the book. I hope it's making an impact. It should be. Great. Thanks a lot. And um, yeah, really appreciate it. I really enjoyed talking with you as well. I mean, you've asked some really good questions and really, really dug into what the book was about. I really appreciate that. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. Start less, finish more. That's Dan Montgomery's book. And this book is just so rich in ideas. And you heard us talk about some of these bullet points, the limitations of the balanced scorecard, the retreat to cozy mental models, why OKRs are the engine to driving agile strategies. Loved the section on multi-causal systems, the steep framework, platonic values, and the reference to the Kinevin framework. I could go on. Now, where I believe Dan's book shines is if you work in the area of business where change is the constant, Dan keeps reinforcing the people element over and over and over again, directly and indirectly. That's how we get results. To learn more about Dan, check out his firm's website, agilestrategies.com. Actually, I said that wrong, agile-strategies.com. The firm name is Agile Strategies, but again, the website, agile-strategies.com. If you read the book, let me know on LinkedIn. Drop me a line and do so with Dan. Look him up, connect and let him know what you thought of the book. Hey, we need to call this a wrap. I'm Mark Gandy for CFO Bookshelf.